Good morning. <laughs> what a, um, this is great to be here. Um, it was awesome. Uh, first time in, in this campus, in this building. Um, I, I was here maybe a few years ago, and at the time, uh, we were in, in Artesia, I believe, and uh, at the time, we were praying about and dreaming about and thinking about this campus opening up here and uh, to be here in all of its glory. Uh, such a joy and such a blessing. Thanks to uh, Pastor Dan and Pastor Harold for um, the gracious invitation to share their pulpit, uh, to allow me to, to sit in the pulpit, to stand in their pulpit and to preach the Word of God. Uh, thanks for being here as well. I don't know if you remember, um, maybe about two years ago uh, in Hawaii, there, uh, right around 8 a.m. their time, uh, cell phones started pinging and going off and a message was sent out by the emergency service. It said uh, something like ballistic missile inbound, uh, seek shelter immediately. This is not a drill. Does anyone remember that? Anyone remember when Hawaii, yeah. Uh, anyone, was anyone actually there during that time? Okay, my cousin was there. Her husband was uh, stationed in the military and he was off on duty. And so it was just her and her little daughter. And it was crazy. It was insanity. For 38 minutes, 30, imagine waking up to that text. You're like, who's waking me up at uh, a little bit past 8 a.m. And you get this message saying your life is going to end. 38 minutes of absolute and utter chaos. On Reddit, um, there was a thread that said, was anyone there? If you were there in Hawaii, what did you do during those 38 minutes? <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, one guy said, I called up my boss and I cussed him out. <laughs> Imagine trying to go into work that next day. Right? Oops, my bad. <laughs> 38 minutes, that's what he did. He cussed his boss out. People were driving hundreds of miles an hour. Phone lines were jammed up. People, I, I remember one guy said um, he was in the middle of a divorce. He texted his, uh, his, his wife going through divorce, and he said, you know, I've never stopped loving you. I hope to see you on the other side. There were family men, husbands, who, who wrote in, and they said, I had to make a choice between my wife and my two kids. And because there were two of them and one of her, I chose to be with them for the last minutes of our life, of our lives. There was someone who said, I just uh, snuck into my kids' beds and I cuddled with them, waiting for the inevitable to come. When there's a threat of a ballistic missile coming to end your life, it has a way of jarring us into this reality to show us what really matters in life, doesn't it? When you got 38 minutes left to live, or you think you got a few minutes left to live, what really matters then? At that time, a lot of the things that we give ourselves to, we're going to realize they don't really matter at all. What really matters at the end of the day when you're lying on your deathbed, Jesus matters, the things that are eternal matter, and the things that are eternal are people. Generation after generation after generation, that's what people are going to say. They're not going to say, oh, I wish I could look at my baseball cards again, or I could look at my uh, stamp collection again, or I could look at my bank statements again. They're going to say it's people. And when it gets down to it, we're going to realize that if any of you are parents or if any of you have, have people who are younger than you, you're going to realize that at the end of the day, that's the one thing I want above anything else. If the world is going to end, if our worlds are going to end, if our lives are going to end, I got to make sure with every fiber of my being, because if it matters when we're dying, then it's got to matter when we're living. What matters? Today I want to talk about why the next generation matters. I want to read from Psalm 78, and I want to help us to see, because a lot of times we think we know what God is passionate about. 
We know that God is passionate about the nations. That's why we do missions. We know that God is passionate about salvation. That's why we go and and evangelize. We know that God is passionate these days about reconciliation because there's all of this kind of reconciliation is a big deal. But one of the unfamiliar passions of God and the heartbeat of God from Genesis to Revelation is he cares about the generations. And a lot of times we turn a blind eye to it and think that it doesn't really make that big a difference if I care about the generations to come. But I want to see from Psalm 78, one of many places where God's heartbeat for the generations is on full blast. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, this is going to be read in the uh, NIV. This is the word of God for the people of God. It says, Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deed to the Lord, his power and the wonders he's done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. And they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. This is God's word. As we look into this text, I just want to bring out two thoughts, okay, two very simple thoughts. The first thing is this, the responsibility of the next generation, or the next generation is the responsibility of the present generation. Okay, understand this, the next generation, the generation to come, is the responsibility of the generation that's here now. I was on sabbatical last summer, and part of my time was spent here in Southern California. I was visiting a bunch of different churches, trying to learn, meet up with different people, um, to glean as much as I could from the different contexts in which I was visiting. And one of the churches I visited on my, my last go-around um, was a church nearby the, the place I was staying. And the average age in that worship service that I was at uh, seemed to be about 60 or 70 years old. It was an elderly congregation. I didn't know that. And as uh, they were doing greeting time, uh, the people in front of me had hearing aids and, and, and walkers. There are people around me who had canes and people who are in wheelchairs. It's just uh, anything that you would see in a regular nursing home was there in that place. And part of me was wondering, did I come to the wrong place? Or, you know, I was just kind of in that place and, and feeling a little bit out of my element. And as we were doing time of greeting, I was introducing myself to the people in front of me, and uh, as they turned around and looked at me, I said, my name is, is, is D.L. And they said, what? <laughs> I said, I'm D.L. Then say that again. I said, God bless you. And then I, I walked on to the next person. And it was a similar thing with each of the people. It was just an elderly congregation grizzled through the years. And as we were singing songs of praise, the first three songs, everybody was just seated, hanging out in their seats as they were singing the songs. And then for the last song, the praise leader said, if you are able, please stand from where you are seated and join us in singing. So I stood up, obviously, and the people around me, as I was observing them, this this kind of preface to the song took a good 10, 15 seconds because it took every 
ounce of energy within some of these people to actually stand up as they were leaning on the chairs and the pews in front of them. And as we sang this song, I, I'd never heard the song before, and later I would Google it and I would think about the words and it says something, that, and I'm, I'm not gonna get it completely right, but it says something like standing on this mountaintop, seeing just how far we've come, knowing that with every step you were with us. Kneeling on this battleground, looking at the scars in our lives, knowing that for every victory, um, it was through you. Something to that effect. And it says, uh, scars and wounds may line the way, yet with joy our hearts can say, never once did we walk alone. Never once did we walk alone. You were faithful, God. Yes, you were faithful. And as they sang that song, as I looked around, at what I thought was a very hokey song, I saw almost every one of these grizzled veterans in the army of God lifting their hands to God. And in that moment, I just began to, to think and I began to ask myself and wonder, what did those hands mean? What did those uplifted hands represent? What did those wrinkles on their face represent? What did every white strand of hair represent? What did every tear that was falling as they sang that song, what did those things represent? And I long to know, because it's one thing when I, a 40-year-old man, say it. it's another thing when a 20-year-old sister says it, but it's another thing when 70-year-old saints, 80-year-old saints knocking on the door of glory say, with joy we can say, never once did I ever walk alone. And the heartbeat, the cry of my heart was, I wanted to know, tell me the stories of God. Tell me what you've been through. Tell me what you've gone through. Show me, because what they were doing was what Paul says in Ephesians happens when we gather in the corporate body. They were singing music, making music in their hearts of the Lord, but they were speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And they were ministering to my soul of a God that I long to know as intimately as they had through the years. It was almost a defiance rebelling against the bodies that were warring against them. Saying, we're going to stand and with every fiber of our being, we're going to declare that God is worthy because people coming behind us need to know that these things are true. The cry of the psalmist here when he says, I will open my mouth. I will utter things. What we have heard and seen, what our fathers have told us in verse 4, says we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. If you've experienced something like, if you've experienced something like that, would you not want to with all of your being tell the people around you what he's done? Now, I flew into LAX, and um, I saw a basketball player named LaMelo Ball. He's a high school player. And I, I walked up, and I was like, dude, can I, can I take your picture? And he said, I'm, I'm not taking pictures. So I took a picture of him, and I posted it on social media for everybody to see. Because I wanted people to know. I saw this man of great athletic power and prowess. I want you to see the things that he's done and that I've encountered him in all of his glory. If you see somebody, that's why we post food on social media. It's kind of weird, but we've experienced the glory of whatever cuisine that we're eating. We want the world to know. Don't you think it's worth telling people if you have had an encounter with the living God? 
good night. Because the responsibility for the next generation lies squarely on our shoulders as generation now. There's a defiant spirit within the psalmist saying, we ain't going to let the next generation rise up without knowing the things that we've seen. Because he knows the alternative, and he says it here. Check out what it says at the end of in verse 8. It said, they would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. That's what happens. We don't communicate the glories of God to the next generation. This is one of the saddest passages in Scripture, in my mind, in uh, Judges chapter 2. It talks about Joshua. You know, if you don't know, um, Joshua was the, the wrecking ball of God to bring down the walls of Jericho. He was the great leader of Israel after Moses had died and, and, and been buried. It was Joshua who rose up to lead the people of God in the promised land. He saw them and he led them through the parting of the sea. He saw them walk around the walls of Jericho and by blowing a horn, this is is how we fight our battles. The weapons of prayer and worship, and they saw the walls come tumbling down. Is that not something? If you saw that, <laughs> would you not tell your kids about that? Like, I'd be telling them, like, all the time. But this is what it says. Judges chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, here is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. But check, check out verse 10, uh, Judges chapter 2. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who, neither, who knew neither the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What a tragedy it is that the Joshua generation that saw the miracles and the glory of God who had many a story to tell when they died, somehow the next generation rose up and said, we don't know the things that God does. We don't even know who that God is. How does that happen? I'll tell you how that happens. Tell you how that happens because here's the point. The church, friends, is always one generation away from extinction. Okay, don't just take uh, that scripture, but listen anecdotally. You know this if you're of Korean descent or if you've been at, around the church for a long time, you'll hear 10 years ago. The church in Korea was the happening church. It was the flavor of the day, it was set up for revival. Seven of the 10 largest churches in the world in Korea. The greatest prayer movement the world has ever known in Korea. This massive army missions mobilizing force going to reach the world for the gospel. Now, 10 years later, amongst those who are college age and younger, some say 3 to 10% of that demographic is going to church in Korea right now. How does that happen? Because for whatever reason, one generation can be so passionate about the things of God and yet not think about how that affects the next generation and passing the baton and making sure that it's squarely in the hands of those who come behind. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it happened. There's some who say because they prayed but they weren't grounded on the word of God. There's some who say they prayed but they didn't teach the next generation to pray. I don't know what it is. But here's what I do know is that the church is always one generation away from extinction. What is a church 
CCSC, here in Fullerton, 20 years later gonna look like, 10 years later, what's it gonna look like? Because here's what I know with all of my heart, my friends, is that a lot of churches, a lot of churches like ours, like yours, like mine, we're living on the prayers of a generation before us. And we haven't been depositing into the bank of prayer so that when our kids' generation rises up, there's gonna be no money in the prayer bank. We need to realize that the next generation is the responsibility of the current generation. That's our responsibility. You know what study said? There was this article that came out huge, groundbreaking. The number one reason why our Christian kids who grow up in church are leaving the church when they get older, when they get out of high school, it's not secular humanism that's being taught in the universities. It's not all of the worldliness. They said the number one reason church-going kids are leaving the church when they get to college, here's what they said, They're church-going parents. What does that mean? Perhaps it's the hypocrisy that they saw. But I think a greater part of it is, and and, um, I'm just going to tell it like it is, and if you don't invite me back, that's fine, but here's what a lot of it is. What one generation allows, the next generation will embrace. And when we come into worship, bring in our kids 10 minutes late to church. Our kids are watching. They're saying, it doesn't matter if we come on time to church. It doesn't really matter. Being there as a servant to be there early to welcome people, that doesn't really matter. I'm just coming to get my fill and then I go. And what happens in the next generation is if they don't think they're getting their fill, then they're gonna leave the church. Tell you another reason why, because when we go on vacation as a family, Oh, you know what? We're on vacation. We're just here to chill. We don't need to go to church. And so our kids are growing up thinking that our vacation is more important than the church. And when we're not at home, we don't need to go to church. And what does college seem like to me? It seems like a vacation because I'm not at home, so I don't need to go to church. Boy, they're learning from us, friends. They're learning from us. When we tell our kids, hey, you know what? Uh, Gymnastics camp is coming up Friday through Sunday. You want to go? Yeah, I want to go. But mommy, what about church? My children's ministry director told me that we got to go to church on Sunday. Well, it's just one week. It's just one week. What are they learning? Some things are more important than God when it comes to Sunday attendance. Hello. That's what they're learning. Doesn't matter what we say we believe. It's seen in our actions. And our kids are growing up and they're watching us. And what one generation allows, the next generation will embrace. Mommy and daddy missed two Sundays out of 52 weeks out of the year. We're going to miss six Sundays out of 52 weeks until it becomes what Hebrews 10 said. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And we get into a habit of doing that. And all of a sudden, we're like, we raised our children so we raised them to go to church. Why don't they go to church anymore? Because we sleep in the bed that we make. And the responsibility of the next generation is the response for the next generation lies squarely on our shoulders. There is a defiance here. It says we will not hide them from their children. We cannot do that. That would be the greatest form of robbery. It's if we did not tell those who come behind us of the glory and the wonder and the worth of God. Because we're always a generation away from extinction. Joshua was not just a Sunday Christian. He wasn't just a cultural Christian. He wasn't just a nominal Christian, just a name-only Christian. Joshua was the leader of the people of God, but for some reason, the baton did not get passed to the next generation. And it's the tragedy of tragedies. 
Because it not only affects life on this earth, but it affects life in the world to come. First thing that we see is that the next generation is a responsibility of the present generation. First thing. Second thing that we see, investing into the faith of the next generation is the greatest investment that you can make. We're all looking for the next great investment. Not only safe, but it yields high returns. Look at what it says in verse 4, in verse 6. In the middle of verse 5, it says, um, well, he decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. If you listen to this, depending on how you want to see this, this means, uh, listen to the number of generations in verse 5. He commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. That's five generations if you, lead, if you read this in a liberal way, if you read it conservatively. The forefathers to teach their children so the next generation might mean them would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. In other words, when you communicate your faith to the next generation, it has lasting effects for generations even yet to be born. This is huge. You never lose when you invest into the next generation. You understand this? This is massive. You're looking for the kind of investment that will pay dividends. You may not see it now because generations yet to be born are rising up and they're going to be blessed because of the, the investment that you made. I was... Um, Several years ago, I was uh, preaching in Seattle, and the church in, in Seattle had asked me to, uh, to preach about God's heart for, uh, for generations. Like, what is God's heart for people uh, one generation to the next? And as I was, uh, you know, thinking, and the whole week, all of life is preparation for a preacher. It's like this gestation period where you know, and, and I know for about a year out what I'm preaching for over a year, and so I'm thinking and constantly uh, reflecting and, and hearing stories and filing them away, and, and this constant wrestling so that when a preacher preaches, they say he delivers a sermon. I don't mean to be crass and don't mean to belittle uh, women and mothers, but it, they, they say you deliver a sermon in such a way that it, it's part of you and you deliver that and it's life-giving. And so as I'm thinking about this message, I'm hanging out a couple days before at the zoo and um, with my four-year-old niece, Tabitha, my three-year-old daughter, Manny, who's just, uh, we only had one kid at the time. As we're walking around the zoo, just hanging out, our four-year-old uh, Tabitha uh, just started Starts singing, she just starts busting out in this song, um, Toby Mac. <laughs> she just busted out Toby Mac. And she said, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. And then she started rapping, and I said, Yo, Tabby Mac, go get it. And she's like rapping and, and singing the song. And I felt as I was hearing that, that God dropped this little bomb in my heart. And he said, You need to hear what she's saying. Because what you're hearing is a cry of a generation. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. And, and I think a lot of times, if I'm honest, that's what my generation of parents are doing. We're giving them everything that they want. 
but withholding from them the one thing that they need and the cry of their hearts and the cry of unborn generations. I don't want all that stuff. I may want all that stuff. I don't need all that stuff. I don't want to gain the whole world and get to ballistic missile day and have lost my soul. What really matters? What are we communicating? That's the difference between how I try to parent my kids and I I wrestle with this because I I wanna give my kids to the world and I wanna give them their dreams and I wanna give them the things that they want but I I wrestle in this tension between what, do they really want that, need that or or how how do I navigate through these things? But for my parents and our parent generation, for, for immigrants, they didn't wrestle with that. My parents didn't at least. They came from a war generation. They ain't talking about what they want. They're talking about survival. Don't talk to me about your wants, boy. (laughs) Talk talk about your needs. They didn't give me everything I wanted. They gave me what I needed. They said the one thing thing we can give our kids that no one else that we can give to, uh, uh, of all things that we could possibly give them, is we can help them to see that Jesus matters above all else. And so I remember we would, from middle school until high school, until we left for college, Mom and dad would call us to the living room and be sitting on the floor. And they would say, we're going to sing and we're going to have family worship. I was like, oh, man, okay. So we did it one time and it was like mad awkward. It's just like, it's weird. Like, I don't want to hold hands with like my brother. I don't want to hold hands with my mom. I'm like, weird. Why are they asking me to share about my, you know, middle schoolers don't share feelings. Like, what, prayer requests? I don't know. Pray for school. Oh, you doing okay in school? What else? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to talk to them about it. It was weird. And so one time it's done, and then they call me down the next week. David, Nerewa, I come down. <laughs> time for family yeve, family worship. I was like, again? We did last week. Are we going to do this every week? Every week? Until when? Just through Lent? No, this is for the rest of your life. I'm like, what? We sing this song. Oh, hymn 305 in your hymnal. Open it up. They open it up, and this is like Korean hymn. Something like that. My dad would say he was like the bass in the choir. Mom was like the, the, the alto. So they would sing this song. And, and it, it was a Korean song that got translated into English. And the words were, do you ever read Korean stationery? Oh, my gosh. It was kind of like that, like, hello, my sunshine is brightest in the night when you are near me. Something, something wild like that. Spring breezes blow at all times in our home. We serve our heavenly Father, our God. Just like these weird words, and, and they're all offbeat. And like, can we sing like at least an English song translated into Korean? Because that's a little bit more uh, makes sense and flows with the people. We're singing this song, and every time, sing the same song, 305, 305, 305. And I'm like, ah, for year after year after year. But I think what they were doing, and they didn't know it, We didn't know it, but they had put a ticking time bomb in my heart, in my brother's heart. And at a certain point, this bomb went off, and we're like, holy cow. This one line in the song says, even our poor home is a heavenly place. As I thought about that, I was like, that's what it is. We don't have everything. We, man, we're playing with the Atari 2600. We're in high school. Everybody else is playing like, I don't know what their gaming systems are, at least Nintendo. We're like playing with our Atari 2600 and black and white TV. But even our poor home was a heavenly place because they knew that when we invest into the faith of the next generation, we never lose. 
And these days when we do family worship, we don't do it well. We don't do it often at our home, and I want to because my kids want it more than I do. A lot of times I think it's for the kids, but I learn so much more from family worship than my kids do. Like, they're so eager to do it. Daddy, when can I pick the song? When can we sing? Can I read the Bible? And, and I remember one time when it was just, we, again, just our daughter, Manny. We've got three now, but we just had one. And she was singing. We were singing 10,000 Reasons. And so uh, we're just worshiping together. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. And my daughter, three years old, she said, Daddy, stop. You're doing it all wrong. I said, why? This is what she said. She said, Daddy, you have to do like this. Close your eyes. And then she picked my hands up. She said, you have to do like this. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. I said, why? She's like, because that's how you do it at church. <laughs> that's how you do it at church. What was she saying? Like, Daddy, I want you to be the same person at church as you are at home. Because I'm watching you. I'm watching you because so much more is caught than it is taught. Oh, they're watching us as those five handsome men that Pastor Dan talked about become elders, our kids watching us. Oh, and they're going to grow to become such godly children because their parents are walking with the Lord God. What an inheritance that we can, what a, what a testimony that someday when we get to our funeral, I forgot who said this, when we get to our funeral, let us live such a life that our kids don't have to lie about us when they eulogize us. My dad was an elder, and he was a model of Christ for me. Let it be said of you. My mother was not only, oh, she read the Bible to me, but the best version of Scripture, not the NIV, not the ESV. It was the version that I read from watching and reading my mother's life. That's what they would say. I saw her live out the faith. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, to go to the bathroom, and 2 o'clock in the morning, I would see in a darkened, my dad's darkened room, he would be up mumbling prayers or writing out scripture with just one little light on, just writing scriptures because he wanted to know Jesus more. He wasn't the perfect dad. He was, actually, he was a really terrible dad for the better part of my life growing up. But when he got, when the gospel got a hold of his life and the work of God, I believe that God was real because I saw the transformation in my, my old man. My mom, she would teach me. She didn't have much. She became a believer after my parents got married. But once she encountered the Lord, there were miracles all up in her life. And she began to, 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 to teach me to pray. Anytime there's a problem, uh, we, can't, we can't always buy the answer, but we can pray. First impulse was let's pray. You're sick, pray. If you're ill, pray. If you got these pains, pray. If you're struggling with something, pray. And I grew up as a teenager seeing so many answers to prayer. And I believed in my heart, this is it. My mom started the um, intercessory prayer ministry at our, our church in Virginia. Pastor Harold used to serve at that church. I used to serve at that church years ago. And, and thousands of people within that church. And there's a 24-hour intercessory prayer chain where elderly people go into a room. And that doesn't have to be elderly, but people go into that room. And an hour a day, they pray for prayer requests that come in. I was at a funeral about uh, last year for my uncle. He was one of the founding members of the church. And as we stood in the receiving line, just Elderly woman after elderly woman saying in Korean to me, Pastor David, we're always praying for you. We're always praying for your ministry. Wherever you go to preach the word of God, we're praying for you. We're so thankful for the work of God in your life. And I realize, man, I stand on the shoulders. We stand on the shoulders of something amazing. And we've got to build a house of prayer for the generations to come. 
the responsibility is not just on the present generation, but he says we will not hide them in verse four from our children. He makes it clear that the main responsibility, it's the parents. One of our friends, uh, Pastor Harold's best friend, Owen, the pastor at, uh, at, at the church my parents are at now in the, in the English-speaking side, and he says at membership day to all the parents, he says, listen, I'm not praying for your kids. Right? There's just too many of them. Don't expect me to pray for the kids. That's your responsibility as parents. I'm not going to go through the, the roll book and pray for your kids because that's on you. The great responsibility of parenting, raising our children, lies squarely on the shoulders of the parents. But there's a reason why the church is called the family of God, because a lot of times parents can't always do that. And that's why it's so crucial that we have other people who are investing into the next generation. At my church, about 10 years ago, we had this uh, single lady quietest person. She's kind of like Martha Stewart. She, she didn't do like tax evasion, go to jail, but she was like Martha Stewart, and she loved to cook and loved to do crafts and things like that, and, and just super sweet, quiet, the most introverted person that you might know. But one thing she did is she just loved people. She loved individuals, and she loved them as if they were the only person to love, and she just pursued them, and she loved them in a, in a way that she knew how, and she said, I want to serve our youth ministry. And so she got assigned to teach the 10th grade class, which is probably not the wisest decision on my part as a youth pastor at the time, because there were 10 people in the class, and they were all like alpha males and strong girls, and um, just, I mean, they were the ones who, ones who would come on stage at their high school, and, and they would take off their shirt, and they would flex, and they would win Mr. High School pageants, and they would win Mr. You know, this and that, and, and that's the kind of people they were, loud, brash, proud, arrogant. Didn't like listening because it wasn't the cool thing to do. Uh, when they graduated high school, that class sent me a picture for uh, pastor's appreciation. And like half of the boys got their finger in their nose saying, we love you, Pastor DL. I'm like, dude, that's like not very pleasant, but that's who they were. And she taught that class, 10th grade, in a hallway where all the youth classes would meet. They were at the end of the hallway. And you would always hear people banging on the doors, jumping off the table. Like 10th graders, like who does that? They're like laughing and giggling and all kinds of strange noises coming out of there. And sometimes they check in, hey, you guys doing okay? They're like, yeah, yeah, we're doing like learning by activity. <laughs> and then they like go out. And, and after the class would end, I'd, all the class were done. I'd go through each door and turn off the lights. And, and sometimes she'd just be sitting in there by herself after the classes had gone. And sometimes it looked like she got hit by a train. Sometimes it looked like she just mourned the death of somebody that she loved. I said, you all right? You want to keep doing this? Said, yeah, it's okay. Because one thing I know is that she loved in a way that she knew how. And that meant she would bake for them and, and she would uh, spend time with them and she would love them and above all, she would pray for them. She would pray for them and she would pray for them and she would pray for them. And at the end of the year, I said, I'd like to teach my class again next year. Are you sure? It's really loud in there. I would like to teach them. Yeah, it's just I feel like I'm, I'm starting to get through to them. 11th grade came, same thing happened. Bouncing off the walls, jumping off the walls. Walk in the room, hey, you okay? Yeah, gonna be all right. It's gonna be okay. God loves these guys. 12th grade, hey, you wanna do this again? 12th grade, crucial. They're about to go to college. Huge year. Sure you wanna do it? I've done it for two years. I'd like to finish out with them. You sure? 12th grade, same thing happened. Bouncing off the walls, making all kinds of noise. Still baking, still loving, still praying. A year came and went. I remember going to all of their graduations. 
and wishing that I could write in their cards, I'm so proud of the man or the woman that you've become, but I couldn't write that, at least not honestly. <laughs> I got to the end of that year, and I was like, man, these guys had so much potential. Nothing actual yet, but there was a lot of potential. And as they graduated and went off to college their own ways, this group of 10, over the years, one by one, the seeds of prayer and love that were invested into that next generation began to bear fruit and break through the hardened soil of their hearts. This one girl went off to college and, and, and caught a vision for what it would be like to enter the medical field for Jesus and was instrumental in starting the first Nurses Christian Fellowship at her university. Another guy who was just struggling with all kinds of, he was way out there. You wouldn't necessarily see it. He's just kind of, he thought he was kind of weird, but he was battling a lot of demons. But when he gave his life to the Lord, he said, I'm going all in. And he threw his life head first into the gospel, is still leading and discipling many of our peoples. And one of the people within his small group that he was ministering to and praying for is now out in the mission field, wreaking havoc in the hardest nations of the world. There's another guy who was a lacrosse superstar. He was uh, Mr. Lake Mary at his high school, was all, doing all kinds of things that were uh, ungodly, things that lacrosse players do. But when the Lord God got a hold of his heart, he said, I want to give my life so that people in foreign nations could come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus. He's getting married next month and him and his wife have a burden so that many people in the Middle East, refugees and Muslims and whomever it might be, might come to the saving uh, hope of Christ. There's another guy, I mean, this is like one by one, all of these stories are coming out. Um, about 10 years ago, eight years ago, there's this one, one kid named Tico, and he said, I want to go, and I want to go to missions, and I want to tell people about Jesus. He was uh, fresh off the boat, so Korean, English, wasn't great at either one of them. Uh, he got picked on a lot, um, got made fun of sometimes, and so dealt with a lot of depression and hopelessness and despair and, and just dark thoughts. And one year while he was a missionary on the mission field, he didn't really realize that he was actually the mission field and, and, and the Lord was ministering to him and, and through um, another FOB from another place who came to do missions with our group, he found so much hope in the gospel. And he said, I'm ready to, I want to live for Jesus, not just from the outside in, but from the inside out. And he started just giving his life and bringing hope to so many people by sharing his story of how darkness was met with the gospel and, and his favorite song was you make beautiful things out of the dust. Eight years ago, we were on a mission trip in Ecuador, and it was the last day of our Ecuador mission trip, and, and I asked our group, I said, hey, this is the last day. Uh, we're not coming back to Ecuador. It was our third year there. We're going to be done with that country and move on to explore other opportunities with missionaries that we're partnering with. And I said, anyone, last shot, anyone want to share their testimony at a worship service tonight in this little podunk village in the Amazon where the gospel is not reached? And uh, Tico said, I'll do it. I want to share about how I was despairing and depressing and I found hope in Jesus. I was like, all right, we're going to do these things. I went over the schedule for the day and I said, at the end of the day, after dinner, we're going to have a worship service in Cabano and, and Tico, you share your story. He was so excited about it. And that day, as often does in the mission field, our plans changed 
multiple times, once, twice, three times, four times, five times, I count changing the schedule in my, in my planner. And every time I said, all right, y'all, here's what we're going to do next. Instead of doing this, we're going to do this. Instead of going here, we're going to go there. And he would say, am I still going to share my testimony? I was like, you're still going to share. First time he said, I was like, I was thankful that he asked. Second time he said, I was like, yeah, you're still going to share. Third time he said, I started getting annoyed. I was like, dude, listen, (laughs) worship is the one thing we're going to do. Okay, don't worry about that. We might not do construction. We might not go this place. We might not um, eat at this person's house, but we're going to have worship at the end of the night. And so you're still going to share no matter what we do. but he would not share that night because a couple hours before we were to have that worship service, uh, Tico drowned in a river just outside of the village that he was supposed to share in. I remember his teacher saying things like, you know, we ought to be the ones going. Like, why are we losing our children? and letting them go in the mission field. And why is this? We need, to, we need to rise up. We need to grow. We need to stop making excuses. We need, to, we need to live it. We need to show it. The rest of us came back. Everyone else, the six other people went back early. I was still there. His dad came down. His brother came down. We're looking for his body in the river, and all these people are helping us out. We finally get back to Orlando, and I remember talking with his, with his dad, fruitless search up and down these rivers and tributaries and following vultures thinking maybe they're looking they're seeing his son to no avail and and he said you know I was preparing to send my son to Berkeley College of Music fulfill his dream hundreds of thousands of dollars would have gone into that but instead of that I want to give my life so that people in this Amazon region of Ecuador could find hope in the gospel the way that my son did. So we came back home and we started a foundation. We planted a missionary down there who's just killing it. He's killing it. As of last November, we have planted seven churches in that unreached, untapped Amazon region. And over 300 people have been baptized as they hear the gospel, come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. People said, and we said, hey, we're not coming back here. But when Tico went home to be with the Lord, the first thing that came to our our hearts was death will not keep us from being able to propagate the message of the gospel to people who need it. The last thing we want is for them to think that the reason we did not come back is because someone passed away on the mission field. We wanted to show that the hope of Christ is bigger than life and is bigger than death. And we planted our roots firmly down there. We've got a group of people going again this in, in, in a couple months. And the work of God is going forth like crazy. And when Tico, who his body in heaven awaiting, I'm sorry, soul in heaven awaiting the resurrected body, there are going to be so many people who are in Ecuador because of his life because of his investment, because he wanted to share his life and his hope and his story. And I told his brother that day, his younger brother, who actually goes to your church, the other campus today, I said, your brother didn't get to share what he wanted to share that night. But as often as the Lord allows me, I'm going to share his story for the glory of God. I think when we get to heaven... There's going to be a lot of people who are there, not just because of Tico, 
Joshua. There are going to be countless other people who are there because of these folks, but more so, I think, because of one single lady in her 30s who said, it may not make sense for me to give to these people. People might not understand it. They might wonder why I keep doing it. But I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it because I believe that this next generation matters. It is worth giving my life for. And she did, and she's still doing that to this day at our church in different ways. Because she heard the unspoken cry of generations. I don't want to gain the whole world, but lose my soul. God, we need you. We want to give you. Take all this world has. Just give us Jesus. It's the cry of a generation. We can say that this is not Joshua's story, Tico's story. It's Jesus' story. Because he's the one who had it all. He had all the glories of heaven. He had all of the worlds. But he said, I've got the whole world. But I want to give it up in order that I could have your soul so that your soul would not be lost. And at Calvary's cross, Jesus went. And he said, for me to live is my people and to die is their gain. And as he looked through the eyes of time and history, looking not only at the disciples who had abandoned him, his mother, his, the, the women at the cross, but looking through history, he saw generations yet unborn, and he loved you and he loved me and he loved the unseen generations in such a way that he loved as if we're the only ones to love. And if you were the only one on this earth that God had created or the only one left, he still would have sent his son Jesus to die for you, and he would do that for every person who's ever breathed the breath of life on planet Earth and for every person who ever will. Because we need to hear the cry of a generation and the heartbeat of God through this passage. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, parents, older people, people who've got those coming behind us, you gotta understand. At the end of it all, if they remember Jesus and forget us, they've lost nothing. But if they remember us and they forget Jesus, they've lost everything. What will we pass on to those who come behind us? I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. It's the cry of that generation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this love that doesn't always make sense, for a love that we cannot comprehend, for we're all here because at some point in our life journey, there was somebody who looked at us and instead of writing us off, saw us with the eyes of Christ and believed in us and believed in us and prayed for us and didn't stop praying and gave and gave to a people undeserving so that we could stand here now in our hands, the baton of the gospel, firmly held. And the question that confronts us this morning is what will we do with the riches of the gospel entrusted to us? As it was said of us, as it was said from our lips, May we hear the cry of the generations. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. Well, may we decide 
and choose by grace because of the gospel to say, Lord, investing in the generations for the glory of God is worth it. May we do that and may we find great joy in so doing. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.